This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. You probably know Shel Silverstein as a poet. And that's how I knew him, too, when I was growing up. But when I was in college, I came across a film called Things Change, which Silverstein wrote with his friend David Mamet. And it tells the story of a series of events that led a man to make a false confession. It's fiction, so the fact that all the pieces sort of fall into place, leading a guy to admit to a crime he didn't commit, that doesn't seem strange at all. It just seems like a plot for a movie. But if you told me that actually happens in real life, that one thing leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to someone admitting to a crime, and that this happens all the time, well, I really don't think I would have believed you. And I wouldn't have believed you until I read about Kyle Scherer's work. Scherer makes a case that confessions are sort of like a Rube Goldberg machine. One thing triggers another, which causes something else, which results in an outcome. And in a lot of cases, a a tremendously disconcerting number of cases, the thing that sets everything into motion isn't the guilt of the person who ultimately confesses. Kyle Scherer is a professor of psychology at Central Michigan University, For the past decade, he's been trying to solve the riddle of why people confess to things they haven't done. And his article on false confessions was recently published in the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science. Kyle Scher, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. This is a pleasure. There's a story behind everyone's research. Sometimes the story is just, well, this is what my advisor was researching. And and I do know that's at least partially the answer here, because your advisor, when you were a graduate student at Iowa State University, Stephanie Madden, had been influential in this area. But, you know, even if that's the starting place, I wonder what it is that drew you and continues to draw you to understanding why people confess to things they haven't done? Yeah, it's a great question and one I get from students quite often. And there's a part of me that, for the sake of storytelling, wishes there was an instance in my life in which I did or a family member or a close other falsely confessed and, and eventually was exonerated and, and so forth. Um, I, I don't have a, a story like that, probably fortunately so. And, and I think it's good also from an objective point. It's it's not like I have an agenda. The truth is, is that in graduate school, I made a change. I originally was studying self-fulfilling prophecies. And for a variety of reasons, we made a change to studying, in general, police interrogations. And part of the appeal is that the entire process of false confessions and, and how innocence plays a part into false confessions is so counterintuitive. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things to explain to people to help them to appreciate, because even after you present anecdotes and after you present a lot of research, they still are in disbelief that anyone would falsely confess to a sexual assault or falsely confess to a murder that they didn't commit. It is cliche to say, but in, in so many ways, it's unbelievable to most people. And that's fascinating to me. And it makes me energized and wanting to study this and understand it at a deeper level all the time. And then you also have the back end issues in which this is happening in our legal system with really important and real consequences for innocent people. They are being wrongly convicted, spending years and sometimes decades in prisons for crimes they didn't commit. And these are often some of the best years of their lives that they are losing. You know, to do 
this kind of research, you've really got to spend a great deal of time digging in to the stories of people like that, the, the people that this thing has happened to. And it, it seems to me that would take a lot of emotional energy. It does. And, and so from a research perspective, all of this is fascinating. It provides you energy to, to look at new things and in different ways. But there's also the human perspective of it that is really disheartening and, and troubling. And you find, I guess, justifications and motivation that you hopefully will make a difference to rectify these issues, to help someone who is innocent to continue to proceed, because you're absolutely right. It is very emotional. It's highly troubling. Well, let's build up to how we get there, how we get to someone whose life has been fundamentally changed by this research. We obviously, we got to explain the research. Over time, you've added little pieces to this puzzle of why this happens, a, a series of cumulative disadvantages that start with somebody being misidentified as a suspect, which itself is often the result of disadvantages. So before we get to the chain of events that leads to confession, can we talk a little bit about the factors that put someone into the position of being presumed to be a suspect to begin with? How does that happen? That's a great question. And to be perfectly honest, these are some discussions I've recently been having with several colleagues since this paper was published. This is an area that law psychology knows very little about, and that's a problem. We don't know specific reasons and, and systematic reasons for why innocent people are being targeted for wrongdoing. And, and certainly you raise very good possibilities and possibilities that will be supported by research. So people who are disadvantaged, maybe they're minorities, maybe they're low socioeconomic status individuals. Sometimes it happens because of the relationship they have to the, the victim of the crime. Other times it's because a person comes in and mistakenly identifies someone from a lineup. Uh, we know memory is very poor, especially often in high stress situations. And so their ability to point someone out of a lineup sometimes is inaccurate. And from that point, that person becomes the prime suspect and becomes the, the major player in the interrogations. So the, the bottom line is we don't have a very robust understanding of why certain innocent people become targets for this accusation. But in any case, that is the start of this process. Obviously, you can't have a false confession if it's not false. So the domino effect starts from there. And there are other parts that you've identified. And one of those parts, a rather essential part, is that People who confess are often quite naive about the criminal justice process. For some of these people, this is the first time they've been involved in the system, right? Absolutely. And along with that, innocence makes you especially naive. We know from a, a variety of research that innocent people are more likely to waive their Miranda rights. They think they have nothing to hide. They think that they'll be able to talk their way out of it and help the interrogator understand their innocence. They are more willing in general to talk about criminal wrongdoing than guilty people are. And so they approach the interrogation much like an innocent person would approach other accusations in their life. If a coworker or a boss or a partner accuses you of something you didn't do, you try to talk your way out of it and help them to understand you didn't do that. And the same thing happens during 
custodial interrogations. The problem is, is you are not trying to convince a coworker or a partner. You are trying to convince interrogators who are really good at what they do. That harkens back a little bit to something you studied back at Iowa State University. Back in 2013, you were part of a team that published a paper that identified stress as a key factor in false confessions. And you found that innocent people, because they're innocent, because they presume that the system will eventually recognize their innocence, are less stressed. And I guess it's a bit counterintuitive because you would think that being falsely accused of something would be a very stressful situation. But the fact that they have this lower level of stress might put them at greater risk. Can you explain that? Certainly. My advisor, Stephanie Madden and Max Gwill at Iowa State and others have started to collect these physiological data related to guilt and innocence. And it is counterintuitive, but it, it's, it's really fascinating as well. So theoretically, what happens is an innocent person comes in, they are accused of wrongdoing, and they're initially buffered by their innocence, essentially. They realize, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, eventually, the interrogator is going to realize that I didn't do anything wrong, that I'm not guilty of what uh, they're accusing me of. And they use their innocence and lack of involvement as a way to buffer the threat of the accusation. On the flip side, you have guilty folks who don't have that buffer. They very well know that they are guilty and they are then experiencing more physiologic reactivity because of impending consequences that they perceive and that the threat is real for them. Innocent people, the threat is perceived as not real because they know they didn't do it. There's another key element to this framework. It's an investigator who believes the suspect is guilty. Why does it make a difference if an investigator thinks the person is guilty or if that police officer maybe isn't sure one way or another? Why is that important for this chain reaction that happens that leads to these false confessions? Most interrogations start with uh, behavioral symptoms analysis in which an interrogator will look for oftentimes nonverbal but also verbal cues to determine whether the person is being deceptive or forthright. And they use those cues to determine whether they think the person is innocent or guilty. And that might be all fine and well. The problem is, is that they use cues that are not supported by any kind of psychological science. And what happens then is you come in with a pre-existing notion and expectation that this person who you are interviewing and talking with is guilty, and you perceive certain behaviors, verbal and nonverbal behaviors, as confirming their guilt, even though they may not confirm that guilt. So if you came in with a lack of expectation about a person's guilt and you approach the question much like a, a scientist approaches hypothesis testing, you could conceivably then say, well, this person isn't demonstrating anything that indicates deception or guilt and have a better idea of whether that person is actually guilty or innocent and should go forward with the questioning. The problem is, is that they try to confirm their initial belief that the person is guilty. And so they interpret behaviors in a way that makes them appear guilty and confirms that belief to go on into the interrogation. They're seeing the things that they expect to see. This gets back to the self-fulfilling prophecy thing that kind of launched your research career. In many ways, they are creating the reality that they want to believe. 
in the pre-confession part of this process, everything leading up to that moment that somebody says something that is untrue, are there other things that you see again and again? There are certain tactics that are highly problematic, both during the the pre-interrogation and during the interrogation. I think most psychologists and most legal experts would consider them unethical and, and coercive. They increase the likelihood that the person will behave in ways that they wouldn't have behaved had those coercive and manipulative social influences weren't present. And so it would, you know, be behaviors the innocent person wouldn't engage in or decisions the innocent person wouldn't make. This reminds me a lot of the research that's been done and sort of the introspection that has happened in the wake of the September 11 terrorist attacks and the U.S.'s national response to that and the interrogative response to that, which was quite problematic because tactics were being used that weren't beneficial for getting good information. And I wonder if there's overlap in your research to the research that's being done on the military side of things, too, on on sort of similar subjects. Certainly. There are groups of people who do um, domestic interrogations and interviewing, but also military and international interrogations and interviews. And conceptually, the ideas are, are very similar. When we use coercive, misleading, and unethical tactics, be it in a custodial interrogation or an international interrogation, the information we get is oftentimes not very diagnostic. If we use less confrontational, less adversarial approaches, those have been reliably demonstrated both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. to result in much more diagnostic information. In fact, in the U.K., for example, they use something known as the peace approach, something the U.N. has adopted that is a a very non-confrontational, non-adversarial approach. And some of the initial research coming out has shown that you don't eliminate interrogators' ability to get guilty confessions, but what you do see is a a substantial drop in the number of false confessions that are being secured. What is the trigger point? Eventually, all of this comes to a head in a moment where somebody makes a declaration that is not true about something that they've done, about something that puts them in greater long-term harm in order to avoid the short-term pain and suffering and stress that they're going through. What is that thing that drives people to do that? There comes a point, and this point will, again, vary depending on who is being interrogated, that a person becomes so psychologically and physically exhausted that their only sense of hope, their only sense of relief from this incredibly unpleasant situation is the confession. That's their only escape hatch. And sometimes this could come very early in an interrogation. Sometimes it could come an hour into it, a couple hours, depending on if that person is, you know, addicted to certain substances or if that person has not had a meal or is being sleep deprived. But in general, after several hours is a pretty good point in which there is some likelihood that the the confession is not true. Time and duration of the, the interrogation is a very reliable indicator of whether a confession is true or false. And certainly the longer it goes, the more likely it is to be a a false confession. You write that once a false confession has been made, it virtually guarantees a conviction. And what surprised me about that is not 
just because a confession is such a powerful force in front of a judge or a jury, although it is a powerful force, you've also argued that one of the after effects of a false confession is corrupt evidence gathering. How do we go from a situation where an investigator is presumably working within the parameters of the law, although perhaps wrong about their assumption about someone's guilt? How do we go from there to a place where they're starting to cut corners and even to break the law to create an evidentiary picture that conforms to that confession? You're absolutely right. It's incredibly remarkable. And I think if you would have told people this, maybe even five years ago, but certainly, you know, 10 years ago, that confessions can create a body of evidence on its own to corroborate the veracity of it, I think a lot of people would have scoffed at you. The reality is that it can change, even things as presumed to be as objective as mixed DNA analysis. And so what might happen is forensic scientist is trying to make a fingerprint match from the the print taken from the scene to the suspect, or they're trying to make a, a DNA match. And they're just uncertain at some point. So it's ambiguous. They're, you know, they're maybe leaning toward inconclusive. But then they hear from the interrogator or maybe a detective that the suspect they're trying to match gave a confession, that the suspect confessed to the crime. All of a sudden, the subjective parts of what we presume to be very objective in forensic science influence the interpretation of those kinds of of evidence. And so now what initially might have been ambiguous or inconclusive is determined to be a match because, well, the person confessed. They must be guilty. So this must be a match. I mean, it could be fingerprint. It could be DNA. It could be other types of forensic science. And it happens with eyewitness identifications as well. And what you're left with then is a body of evidence that is corroborating the confession. But the reality is, is that it was actually molded and shaped to fit the confession. You mentioned the Innocence Project. Something I found really interesting as I was digging into the research around this effort to identify people who've been falsely accused and convicted and work toward exonerations is that early research from that project into the percentage of convictions that were overturned with DNA evidence that included a false confession had the number at something around 20%. And and over the years, that number has sort of crept up. And I'm wondering if that's a reflection itself of the choices that the people involved in the Innocent Project are making in terms of understanding that just because there was a false confession at some point, maybe this case still does deserve attention. I think you're absolutely right. I I think in many cases, you know, highly educated legal professionals or no education at all, the idea of false confessions are unbelievable and simply someone confessing is highly compelling. And so I think you're right that they've started probably to take more of a look and open their resources to looking at cases of false confessions. And I also think some of that is due to the fact that people are now coming to appreciate the occurrence of false confessions. And so they also realize there's a better chance for them to exonerate someone who has falsely confessed because people's appreciation for false confessions is getting better. There's more research about it. And there's just a higher degree of awareness in our legal system and in our society in general. 
earlier, I, I used the example of a Rube Goldberg machine. The thing about these sorts of contraptions is that if you remove one part, the rest of the chain reaction ends. And I realize it might not be so simple as that in the case of false confessions, but I'm wondering if there was a single part of the framework that you've identified that often leads to false confessions, if there was a single part that you could remove that would be most likely to lead to the rest of the framework falling apart, what would it be? To me, I think I have to default back to kind of the earliest issues in the process. And one of them is to frame how investigators initially interact with suspects. You mentioned earlier that you've had people who have been exonerated come and talk to your class. What is that like? What do they say? What do your students take away from that? In many ways, it's a surreal experience for the students. So being in Michigan, we are unfortunately responsible for some of the innocent people who have spent the most time in prison. And when students hear what the process was like and what the investigators did and what the trials were like that led to their wrongful conviction, in many ways, it's an unbelievable experience to them. It's an insight into a world they either didn't know exist or they didn't want to believe existed. There's a one individual who came and visited our class. He's come the past two years. He didn't falsely confess, but he was interrogated so long and so coercively that he jumped out of a fifth-story window to get away from the interrogation, and he was caught two blocks later because he had broke his ankle. And what happened as a result of that is that his fleeing the interrogation room was actually used as some of the strongest support and evidence of his guilt. Why else would he be leaving? If he wasn't guilty, why would he want to get away from the interrogation? That was the reasoning. When you talk to people who falsely confess to a crime, they're probably not aware of this conceptual psychological framework. So I'm wondering how they explain it to you and how they explain it to themselves that they took responsibility for something that they didn't do. What is the story that they tell? I think they oftentimes frame it in ways in which they were really naive to begin with, but then their naive mindset kind of put them in this environment that they very accurately described as one of the worst situations they've ever been in. It was you know, constant confrontation, manipulative tactics, interrogators trying to, to get them to believe that they had evidence at the scene of the crime that implicated them when, in fact, no evidence existed, which is legal in our justice system. You can tell someone that their DNA was found at the scene of the crime, even though it wasn't. And when you're an innocent person and you hear things like that, you began to wonder if there was some way you could have done this and you're just not remembering it or you're just not sure of how it happened, but the evidence says you did it. So it must be true. This is systematic, institutionalized gaslighting. In many ways, it is. Yes. What are you hoping comes of your work in the longer term? I think there are several reforms that I find very important and that could be very meaningful for the legal system. Some I'm more confident that may happen 
than others. The first one where there's already some momentum is the recording of interrogations. And ideally, this recording would be pushed back to the Miranda administration, allowing a jury and a defense attorney and a prosecutor to see the tactics that were used to get an innocent person to waive their rights would go to speak to whether that waiver was voluntary, whether it was made knowingly and intelligent. And then the recordings for the ensuing interrogation would also be highly valuable to a jury and to a prosecutor and to a defense attorney. I think it's highly important as well, get policymakers to appreciate the rules of discovery that are being used for plea bargains. So in a, in a jury trial, if a prosecutor has evidence that demonstrates the defendant's innocence, they have to turn that over. If they don't, it's a Brady violation and one of the worst violations that a prosecutor can make or an attorney can make in general in the legal system. In a plea bargain, those same rules do not apply. Plea bargains are the way almost all crimes and legal issues are resolved in our legal system. Estimates range from 92 to 97 or 98 percent. So virtually all legal issues are being resolved via plea bargain. And we need to have a, a fair process that accompanies the plea bargains. That's Kyle Scher. His team's recent article in the journal Perspectives on Social Science detailed a framework for understanding how innocence can lead to confession and wrongful conviction. Kyle, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks again for inviting me. This was uh, a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>